I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest is Andrew Hogue, the CEO and founder of TeamPay. TeamPay has raised over $21 million, is on a path to IPOing in the future. They are building a scalable, distributed uh, spend platform that allows companies to manage the spend of their employees. So previous to TeamPay and other companies out there that are building these spend platforms, there was no way for managers in companies to effectively control what employees are allowed to purchase. And Andrew gave a great statistic that today in a thousand person company, every single person will purchase some product, use some tool out there in the world on the internet. And you need a method for controlling how those get approved, how much people can spend. You can't use personal credit cards and reimburse people like we used to. So we talked about the structure of the company, uh, what their plans are for future growth, what the industry looks like, understanding what companies are doing, the patterns in the market. We, we expanded on some other areas uh, outside of the domain of payments into politics, the economy, the world economy, New York, other cities. Uh, vast conversation, really enjoyed it. Here is Andrew Hogue. All right, Andrew. Excited to chat with you, man. Um, so you're running a pretty interesting company. You started it yourself, Team Pay. Um, also interested in your background. Where to start here? Um, maybe with the background, uh, could you like maybe give me a little sense of what the most uh, interesting or impactful experiences that you had previous to Team Pay that uh, sort of shaped your career and interest? Oh wow, that's a that's a broad question. Yeah, I've I've definitely put in my ten thousand hours. Um, Funny enough, I was just back my childhood home, um, helped my parents move, and went through some of my old um, schoolwork and found some of the programs I wrote as a kid. So, you know, I was probably seven or eight years old and writing some basic programs in Apple. Uh, so, I've always been attracted to technology, formative experiences. I've had many, but I think it goes back to even just even as a young kid being interested in computers and what what they can do and really not computer technology for technology's sake, but how it can improve our lives as humans. And I think, you know, good technology that succeeds eventually fades into the background and disappears. Um, we're not really thinking about everything that's happening right now with the microphone, the browser, the video compression, the internet and the routers and everything in between. We're just sitting here having a conversation. And, you know, that part of it's always been fascinating to me and been an aspirational goal. Mm. 
Uh, were there specific companies where you learned the most or where you gained either software experience or business management experience, things that really kind of shaped your perception or, uh, or way of how you think about building a company? Yeah, I don't know if there are any superlatives. I think, you know, my journey included me selling software over the mail when I was a kid. So I found some, you know, checks I got from people. So entrepreneurial at a very young age. Um, on the engineering side, very, you know, very strongly shaped by my experience working for NASA. That was my first job out of school and very hardcore systems engineering environment that I found really beneficial for later in my career. Um, and then kind of cut my commercial teeth and corporate experience when I was at VeriSign, um, securing banks, governments, and internet sites. And, you know, I think through all of that, I try to take away different experiences. And for me, I'm probably a generalist. I don't know that I'm very employable, um, like a lot of founders, but I like doing a lot of things and took something away from different experiences all to kind of bring me to bear to, to starting TeamPay. Yeah. So what was it like early on when you started uh, TeamPay? What was the impetus for the company? Did you recognize the problem specifically or just see, like maybe paint a picture of the early days for me? Yeah. So it was a problem. I was basically scratching my own itch. And, you know, that's always a dangerous place to be as a founder because sometimes your itch is different than someone else's itch. Yeah. And so you got to be very wary of that. And I think part of it for me is, you know, I had a small startup that I sold um, previous to Team Bay. So I had, you know, basically a little bit of success early on and was trying to think about what I wanted to do next. And I kept having this problem that Team Pay solves which is there were people that I was working with and they needed to buy things and I didn't have an easy way to empower them to buy things on the company's behalf. So, you know, I could give them access to my source code. I could control which applications they use. But if they wanted to spend money, it was either you spend it and I'll pay you back later, trust me, right? Or I'm going to give you access to like my card or some other way to pay and that wasn't very secure. And so team pay really sprung out of that. But I think the inside secret was I probably spent about six months trying to talk myself out of the idea. Um, it wasn't that I was excited about selling procurement software to accounting teams. I don't think that was my childhood dream. Um, but every time I dug in, I found another layer and I got excited with the market. Um, I got excited with the customers, developed a lot of empathy for finance teams that are just trying to do their job. And what historically was an antagonistic relationship with the employees and we're changing that. Um, and then lastly, just kind of the pace of innovation in the space was stagnant. And so I felt like there was a really big opportunity to do something different, improve the experience uh, for the employee base. And that's really why I decided to press go on TeamPay. Yeah. Yeah. My experience, having started a few companies, <clears throat> raised a bunch of money and sold them. And it's like you, you tend to get, you tend to have this little like, it's almost like a whisper where it's like, yeah, that's a problem that you should probably solve or at least look into. And then I tell me if you see it differently or how you sort of uh, relate to th this concept of passion is for me, it's like the, the problem exists. It's persistent. It's, it's, it's available for me to solve. And then the more you dig into it, the more you realize that there's, there's economic opportunity by solving it. There's like a, I could build a business. You could see the pathway, but then there's also like, it's not just about that one problem solving. It's like, oh, this then plays into some other bigger thing that matters in the, in the societal sphere. And, and that, that, the, the knowledge of that, 
vision. It's like you have this key almost where you see something other people don't see. Yeah. And the founder gene is like, okay, now now I have to go solve that because I see that the that this problem is not just this little problem, but it's something that can evolve into something bigger. And then the it kind of the cycle continues. It's like it become more passionate. The more you see, the more traction you get, the more passionate. Uh, yeah, I really, I like that description as a wheel. I never thought about it that way, but that's actually what happened to me, right? Is because I was like, all right, you know, this must be solved and I'm just the only one who doesn't know it. And then you dig in and you're like, actually, it's not. And then, you know, I started looking at the size of the market. There's $28 trillion of BDB payments in North America and nobody really owns that from the spending side of it. So there's a massive, massive market there. Um, and then I zoom out and I think about, well, what's the experience that we want to deliver for the humans? And most people only talk to their finance department when they did something wrong. That's a really, it's mm. a really crappy situation. I'm like, Hey, shame on you. You forgot to turn in the receipt. You didn't code this correctly. You didn't get the right approval. Right. And so, you know, flipping that the judo move that we do is we create a positive relationship between the finance team and their employees. And so I like the human part of it, right? We're impacting the work of work and, you know, a lot of the systems in the space, you feel like you're going to the DMV and, you know, we want to create an experience for, for the employees. It feels like you're at the Apple store and just make the work of work a little less painful. Um, and so then that drives this aspirational goal. And then on the business side, you can start to look at like, what opportunity does that create and how big is that opportunity? And then what are the adjacencies that you can do beyond that um, to the point where like, you know, building a B2B payments network and other types of things like that, which really start to have impactful scale. Um, and so I got excited about the strategy and the three-dimensional chess, and I got excited about the mission that we delivered. And I think having those two things converge were really important. And then there is that flywheel that you experience, which I really like. Mm. Why do you think timing? It seemed like there's a number of companies that started about this time frame, like 2015 to 17. There was kind of a you know, VC tends to be excited about certain industries at different times. Like you have like the Uber for whatever, the couponing explosion. Yeah. The you know I was in one of those waves, and it seems like that wave was like 2016 to 17, 18. It, tell me if you see it differently, but where yeah. was there some unlock there? Was like were banks ch changing the way that debit credit cards were issued? Like w did some technical or regulatory thing change? You know, I haven't really thought about why there was such an influx. I mean, we were probably about eighteen months early. 12 to 18 months early. And like, I had to explain to people what a virtual card was, right? I had explained to people why you can't just turn in expenses for 2000 employees every month. So there was some blocking and tackling that had to happen. And then about, you know, 18 to 24 months later, that all changed. I think it was a combination of two things, right? Least that I can see, right? There was this perfect storm of the insight that we had on the market, right? Peter Thiel's secret, kind of that insight of like, in a modern scaling company today, every single employee is part of the purchasing team, right? So if you have 500 employees, at some point during the year, every single employee will buy something to do their job. And that's just fundamentally different than it was 10 to 15 years ago. So every product-led growth, bottoms-up B2B SaaS company creates another headache for finance. And then you have a bunch of people entering the workforce that are used to everything being on demand on their phone. Right. And so you have this perfect storm of, uh, you know, kind of buyer behavior that was changing. And then similarly to your point, right, 
Um, you know, Marketo was an early vendor of ours. There were a couple other companies. Stripe was starting to deliver financial tools as a service. And so the technical infrastructure became simpler. And so that opened up other opportunities. And I think one or the other, you would have had a little field of dreams problem. But I think the two of those coming together really put a tailwind in the market. And, you know, it was the first time in my career where like we hit the timing maybe a tad early, but almost perfectly right. Um, versus like, hey, we're too early or too late. And like, it was just a really interesting kind of tornado that came together and created this whole ecosystem around it of now, which we're, we're part of, we own a lot of the IP in the ecosystem and we're, you know, we're excited to still be thought leaders in that space. Yeah. And, and what, how do you sort of look forward and say, I mean, tell me, tell me how you'd modify this vision where I see, uh, traditionally companies have maintained a centralized, um, payment reimbursement method. People pay, like you say, in their own credit cards, they get reimbursed. The number of products out there, if you if you limit that, if you don't allow people to have a intelligent method for buying, di- procuring different different services out there, then then people aren't using the best tools. So you, you want people to have the ability to use the best tools, but you also want the ability to kill tools when they're not being used so you're not wasting mm-hmm. money in, in the corporate sense. Um, when you solve that, so you have all the features that allow managers and managers' managers to control budget, control spend, what people can, all these things. Does that then, is that, is that, is that it? I mean, not, not to say, not to imply that that's small. It's certainly a big thing to accomplish. But how does it sort of splinter from there? Like, how does it, you know, go from Google search to Google Maps and, to, or how do you sort of see expansion? beyond the, uh, the initial problem solved? Yeah, so a couple ways I can answer that, right? So one by analogy, right? So when I started, I used to be a software engineer, right? When I started using cloud source code management tools like GitHub, it was just a place to put your source code. Other people could use it, right? And you could kind of like, it was like basically a shared file server for source code. That's where you started, Right. What GitHub now owns today is they own the entire assembly line of software production Mm. from the first commit until it goes live on your site. And they're starting now to drop in products and monetize that assembly line of software production, right? So that's really interesting. Um, Analogous to us, the way we think about the opportunity is that capital as a service and treasury, there's always been ways to get capital into the business, right? So, you know, there's companies like Pipe and a few others where they're like finding new ways to get you more access to capital and put it in your bank account. TeamPay owns the bank account all the way out to the vendors. And so when you control that workflow of money within a business, it's every line item on the OPEX right, that can flow through the system, where it's going, how it's moving, and all the data along the way. And any one of those is its own company. Mm -hmm. And when you're in control of that, you have lots of opportunities to build multiple pillars. And so, you know, part part of my decision, and I know, you know, we can talk about this later, but I'm jumping ahead of like to take venture financing is for once, I had a crystal clear vision of what this company looks like as a public company, right? There's a roof, which is that software layer that you were talking about, and then there's pillars underneath it that support payments flows, 
financing flows, vendor monetization, right? There's all these opportunities along the way to layer in additional businesses, each in each in, in of themselves could be their own businesses, right? But under this umbrella of, you know, controlling spend and plugging into that workflow along the way. And so that's where I got excited about the three-dimensional chess on the strategy side. And that's where we see the vision for this going if you fast forward to five to 10 years. And when you say three-dimensional chess, you're referring to this idea of uh, owning sort of the 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 conduit or the the trunk of the tree and then branching off from there so the when you say you have the access to the bank account to the vendors that allows you the same exclusivity in access to say like com- competing with pipe where you could allow external investors you could have your own capital like i, I, I don't know i don't know quite how does pipe operate with external investors as a marketplace or are they their own yeah. they're a trading yeah. yeah yeah so you would have access, you could just turn that on with the push of a button, similar to, I think of like, Stripe has a similar uh, pathway where you solve one problem, but then it also, because you're such an important central problem, particularly you're the, you're the, you're like, directly connected to the bank account. I mean, that, that to me seems like that's the, that's the thing. If you can build a business and have direct access to the bank account, you can build everything else from there because you have access to data in and out. Yeah, we know what somebody's going to buy before they buy it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty valuable. Yeah. Another <laughs> thing would yeah, what about uh just briefing off ideas here? What about uh you could say like t- tell me if you thought about this or I, I find it an interesting idea is okay. You could say this is this is the company you are and categorically fit in this classification. Here are what other companies that are uh, you know they're anonymous, so we're not going to tell you who they are. But statistically speaking, we have twenty seven other companies in your space. of those have purchased this tool. So you could say you're almost like an indexing marketplace. You say, what do all um, staffing agencies or uh, food marketplaces or, you know, whatever the thing is. And you could say, this is like, uh, there's a company called uh, Stack Social, I think it is, where they show the different companies and then they show what software tools they use under the hood, which is useful. If you're a software developer, you're like, okay, we got to do, you know, text messages. Is that, I'm curious to riff off some of these ideas. Like, where are the branches when you own the the data pipeline or the money pipeline? And does that does my idea make sense? Where I could say, okay, we want to buy like an email merge tool. Okay, instead so, of doing the compare, you're competing with like G two and comparably. Yeah, but you're you're also, you're also working in the digital world, right? So you know, I'm I'm pretty old. When I started my career and I was at NASA, and we wanted to buy routers, we would call up the other NASA centers and say, hey. You know, which routers did you buy and what did you pay? And so we think of our opportunity as becoming a modern digitized version of a procurement team, enforcing policy, centralizing reporting, and then through the data, right, discounting and bulk buying is effectively a data problem and aggregating demand. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of those branches that are opportunistic and it all rests on the fact can you control the spend at the point of the user? And we proved that out years ago. And then it's starting to build out, you know, those underlying opportunities from there. But that's what I mean about the three-dimensional chess here. Mm. You're, you're following the thread well. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. 
We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zengo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Can you define the word procurement for me? <laughs> I don't know if anybody can. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I've worked with procurement teams and, you know, generally like in larger enterprise companies, the procurement team is responsible for making sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, the, the buyer is protected, negotiating the best deal. Mostly procurement teams oftentimes gets comped on discounts. And so there's this whole street versus list game that vendors play with procurement teams um, centralizing reporting, managing vendors to make sure that everything's getting funneled to the right vendors so they're maximizing revenue opportunity for the company. So it's really it's really cost side optimization. It's like revenue optimization, but on cost and expense. Um, and a lot of what they do is really a workflow and data problem. And so I think we find that really interesting as places where we can continue to use software and you know the data that we see from merchants and networks and kind of all of this floating around to help people be smarter about how they're spending. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these words that's like a cloak word that gets thrown on uh, different areas that uh, in my head it's like, okay, what are we, what exactly is it? Uh, moving around a little bit, what do you see? So if we define the fintech space as companies who are providing services somewhat related to payments, incorporating crypto, which would be completely decentralized. Do you see a um, do you see a pathway or an interest in either pr- public or private companies move changing the treasury? So are there's a couple there's I think Tesla, MicroShares, uh I think Overstock MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy, right. There, there might be a couple others, but the, the, the number is quite small on those that have moved their treasuries over to Bitcoin. Are you seeing uh, behind the scenes that being a conversation point that companies are seriously considering or building up to? Like, is the, is the reservoir where the dam might break and all of a sudden like a bunch of companies are interested in doing this? Is certainly inflation increases, it puts pressure on US dollar treasuries. I would imagine that even large, you know, fortune 50 companies are going to move over some percentage of the US dollar savings into 
uh, Bitcoin. But are you seeing that with companies behind the scenes? Not, not, not in our constituency, right? I think most of our company, I mean, generally like treasury cash management, they are the most risk averse people in the organization. Yeah. And so you have a few of these outliers and you have some people chasing yield. And I think in a yield, low yield environment, um, I think some people were starting to think about it. When you look at, you know, especially with Tesla, right? There's some interesting hedging that was going on that, that they were doing with crypto kind of across and there was some financial engineering that was happening around accepting payments and then having in treasury. And, you know, there was some, you know, loop there that they were feeding with that. But, you know, in our experience, finance people don't like new things. <laughs> they like old things that are safe and stable. And if your treasury drops by 10 or 15%, you got to go to your board meeting and explain that. Nobody wants to have that conversation. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's, there's some experimentation happening around that. We have not seen that in our companies. And, you know, I think most of our customers are more nuts and bolts trying to make sure that every I is dotted, T is crossed. They know where the money's going. And that's, especially in this economic environment, you need that level of discipline. Um, you don't have a lot of room to run experiments when inflation is outpacing kind of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any high level thoughts on directionality of the say U.S. economy as it's managed by in inflation in the in the Fed? Uh, certainly, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency weigh into both monetary policy as politicians start to accept. There's a couple of politicians I saw that are taking their salaries in Bitcoin. Professional athletes are doing it. It, it, it seems to be kind of um, moderately supported from SEC regulations. Uh, but the, the, I, I could also see a future where the U.S. government turns against it. There's a political narrative that's like, hey, crypto is a major threat to the stability of the country and the currency, and we have to you know, completely ban it. it it's kind of like, in my mind, it's kind of like a race between uh, technological and practical progress on the crypto front versus the political shaping of the narrative. But I'm curious, do you see a a destiny in the in the short to midterm, like five to 10, that is like a mental model you can wrap your head around? Um, well, last year I was a biologist and this year I'm a macroeconomist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you about COVID next. Monkey pox. Yeah, good. Great. <laughs> yeah, good uh, crypto Twitter and um, COVID Twitter. Yeah, no, I mean, the short answer is, look, I'm not... I'm not really following all of that in a deep yeah. sense. The computer scientist in me um, is bullish on blockchain and solving, um, you know, solving the generalized shared ledger problem and the double spending problems. And I think creating a bearer instrument that's digital is really innovative. And there's a few things that I like about that that are fascinating. The bearer instrument, for one, you have this, you have possession of it, and it's a bearer instrument. The second thing is free and frictionless securitization that happens on the blockchain um, through smart contracts and, and some of those kinds of things. And we've certainly seen the consequences of that. Um, I just think it's super early days and a lot of this stuff is experimental and we're going to go through, you know, I think we're going to have some further troughs uh, and then we'll probably come back into a world where we're actually building for the, for the long term. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I'm not, not really an expert on any of that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I there's always a, it, it's a balance, right? Like as a leader of a tech company, you want to be 
deeply concerned about the success internally of the company, the operations, the the procurement, hiring of the right people, the tools, making sure everyone's doing it. But you also have to be like the captain of the ship, knowing where the other ships are going, know where the weather is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just fundamentally, I'm just fundamentally a pragmatist, right? And like, my goal right now is to make sure that we solve the problem as completely as we can for our customers and get to as many customers as possible. Um, and if, you know, new technologies factor into that, I'm all ears, right? But, you know, I, I'm not sure technologies that are searching for a solution or searching for a problem, so to speak, is the right place for us to start. And, you know, I don't, I haven't seen any situations where, you know, we would want to veer off that course. So, of course, I pay attention to it, but yeah, you know, really at a casual level because I'm very focused on the customer. Yeah. How about uh, after COVID with so many companies moving remote? I heard you actually mention this in a, a previous conversation that you used to have, uh, I think, 30 people in the office. Now you have 30 offices with one person in them. Uh, I'm sure the numbers have changed since then, but certainly the impacts felt across just about every company with the larger, more incumbent companies who have invested a lot into office spaces moving back into the office, many of the new startups like default is remote first. What are the non-obvious implications that you've seen for younger or not necessarily younger, but just companies broadly speaking? Obviously, people are hiring across country borders. Uh, There's tools that build up that infrastructure to allow people to pay and hire people remotely. Uh, there's other challenges like cultural challenges, HR, legal implications. Like when everything's in the U.S., you have the U.S. government to complain to if you get falsely fired or discriminated against or et cetera. How how do you sort of, like, what are the things that are super important to figure out as a society almost as we move to, like, for the first time in history ever, to be, like, connected on a global level, working together on a global level, across countries, across cultures, languages, legal systems. I mean, do you see it as kind of, oh, it's just business as usual and, you know, we're just going to, this remote thing is just going to continue on? Or is there some like real impact that this has in in the world, in the economy and the, the culture of the world, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, we've actually seen, and I've seen in my network, I've seen some of the pendulum swing back, mm-hmm. right? I guess I have a belief that humans are social animals, and we were raised and born in tribes and like there's some connection that you want to have with other humans um and certainly certain jobs and roles are very effective when you're in isolation as an individual contributor um but as a manager or when you're trying to do collaboration or rapid iteration in particular i think at early stages i think the speed and pace with which you can do that in person um is unparalleled right? We're having this conversation. It feels like we're talking, maybe even in the same room, but everything is going through a bunch of zeros and ones. And the energy and the body signal, the body language and the signals are very different um, than if we're in three-dimensional analog space. And so we're compressing, you know, 10 to 50,000 years of social interaction into zeros and ones, and I think it's lossy. And so I think the humanity of it is something that people are realizing. And we see this in our applicants um, because we're hybrid in a sense. We're not full remote. And so if you work at TeamPay, you are going to see your colleagues. And if you don't want to see your colleagues, you can go somewhere else. And like, I'm really clear about that. 
And you wouldn't believe on the interviews when we tell people that they're like, oh, thank God. I want to see people. I want to get yeah. together once a quarter. So people want to connect with other people. And I think that's something that got lost in the whole pandemic. I'm going to have a cabin in Montana isolation problem. And I think the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. And I think the truth is there's some balance there where there's plenty of days where I just like, I don't need to be in the office and I've got something to crank on and I can just sit in my home office and do that. Some of that is a privilege, especially in a city like New York, when you have four people sharing a two bedroom apartment, you can't always do that. So there's also that consideration of like a lot of this home office remote work stuff is for people that have some degree of privilege if they want to live in a big city. But on top of that, I think the humanity part of it is really important. And, you know, I think that's where we found with TeamPay, we enable, we solve in some way, our product helps solve a communication problem, right? And so that quote that you mentioned really highlighted the fact that in a pre-pandemic world, a lot of your buying, purchasing, the context around what you're doing was shared in a physical environment, in a space, potentially even with a human who's an office manager or something like that. And now you're your own office manager. <laughs> like literally, right? You are your own office manager. So how do I make sure that you're managing your office similar to the way that this person over here is managing their office? And that's where team pay comes in because we're actually able to be that enforcement of consistency in a software layer. Um, no longer is the finance team. And then we're delivering information to the employee Here's how you should buy it. Here's where you should buy it from. Here's what you can spend. Team Bay handles all that communication. And then the finance team gets to set the rules of the road up front. And so I think in this post-pandemic hybrid world, we want to connect and create more humanity around people and then also be able to deliver a really great product experience that facilitates exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. So hybrid meaning people can be in the office or don't have to be? Or they have every company defines it differently, right? I mean, I think every company defines it differently. For us, it's you know some regular check-ins in the office on a you know quarterly or biannual schedule, and then there's optional office time, get-togethers in regions. We do this really fun thing. We're doing one next week. Um, we've done it now every quarter this year, where we'll pick a destination and everybody will work remote, but from the same place. And so, well, the company will give a stipend, right? So we'll offer some you know, some fixed stipend. It's like, hey, if you want to work, the first one we did was Mexico City. So if you want to work for Mexico City for a week, a couple of us are going to be down there. I was down there. My VP of sales was down there. Who wants to come hang out in Mexico City? The company will sponsor where we work. You get to work abroad for a week. We're going to help with your expenses. We're going to have some fun social activities after hours. And that has been phenomenal for the mm -hmm. team bonding and the team quality. Um, and it's a very simple thing to do. And so, you know, we've been able to use this to our advantage in some ways, and we used our own product to facilitate that in terms of making sure everybody stayed within the budget and all of that. And so it was a way for us to eat our own dog food on the team pay side. It was one line of policy to turn this on. And we had 22 people show up in Mexico City. And I think we have around 27 or 28 going to Montreal next week. Nice, nice. Montreal and New Mexico City. Those are good, good destinations. And otherwise, Panama, everyone... Panama City and Panama City. I did an Ironman Panama. It's a very hot place. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but otherwise, everyone's in New York. What do you think of, uh, I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, having been in New York for a while. Um, I've lived in Austin. I lived in uh, Boston. I lived in LA. I lived in Portland now. The state of cities seem to be in a 
it, like across the U.S., challenging. Like some cities, I'd say Austin, Miami, seem to be on the upswing, but that's really comes at the cost of tech being remote and moving out of San Francisco largely to other places. So smart people creating companies creates a better environment in the city, like generally speaking. Um, how have you noticed a change in New York over the last three years, 10 years? Yeah. Are, there, are there things that stand out to you? Yeah, so I've been in New York for six years. I was in the Bay Area, and then I was in Berlin for a few years in between. And like, you know, if I think of San Francisco, it's an industry town, right? It's like Hollywood, but for our generation, it's a single industry town and live by tech, die by tech, and everything is tech. And, you know, at some point I got tired of going out for, for Thai food and the person next to me is pitching a term sheet. The person on the right of me is doing an interview. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to have this around all the time. And there was some element of that in New York, like five or six years ago when I moved here. I was like, where are the masters of the universe? Where's the Gordon Gecko? Where's like the Wall Street piece? And it's still there, but I think the more dominant culture has shifted a little bit to tech um, mm. in the city. However, if you remove technology from New York, it's still New York. Like nothing is changing. And so the diversity of that is amazing. And I, I lean into that, right? I lean into that diversity of thought, diversity of thinking. Several of our early hires came from outside of traditional tech companies, right? We hired someone out of consulting who had a business or economics degree as our VP of engineering, and he was phenomenal. Um, and we hired someone from a charter school as one of our first engineers. And so able to pull talent from non-traditional industries, I think has been a bit of a superpower for us. And I think in New York, um, the fact that it's not dependent on technology has actually been a really great thing. And over the last couple of years, I'm still very bullish on the city. I, you know, I was gone for the first few months here when people were ringing in the streets and all the stuff was happening. And it was kind of a little, a little scary in the city. I wasn't around. I was fortunate. I was able to get out of the city for a few months. And I came back thinking that, you know, it was just New York was dead and nobody lived in cities again. And this city is resilient. It's one of the most resilient cities on earth. And I think the way it's recovered and the strength that once it's recovered and how it's recovered is more interesting. We got rid of a lot of the tourists. Um, you know, just tourists, I mean, people who are here for a couple years because New York is shiny. They're no longer coming here and they can't afford to come here anymore because of the rents. Um, you know, some of the families moved out and they moved out to the burbs where they probably wanted to be anyway, took that advantage. But the city is vibrant, it's young, it's recovering. And the amount of new restaurants and new openings and pop-ups and just culture that's happening on a, on a weekly basis here is, is unparalleled anywhere in the world. And I think that's what still makes it a really exciting place to be. And for us to be headquartered here, it's a really exciting place to, to actually find talent um, that is diverse and interested in other things outside of their job and, and bringing a lot more to the job than just, you know, I went to Stanford with a, you know, mm. Can't remember what they call it. They have a CS program at Stanford, right? The symbolic systems degree, and now this is what I do. For you know, it's just that yeah, that yeah, diversity yeah. Thing creates much more interesting um, ecosystem, particularly for creative endeavors like startups. Yeah, yeah. Now I have a lot of friends in New York, and and I get such out, out of everywhere I have friends. New York is the most mixed opinion. You know, some people will be generally strong advocates highlighting the optimistic perceptions that you just did. Some people are more skeptical, emphasizing homelessness, crime, taxes, um, maybe inefficient congestion and traffic flow, which it, I, I don't know the legitimacy of that. If you were to have the ability to like wave a magic wand, change any one thing in the city, 
Uh, One thing in terms of like a policy, not like you can't just wipe away homelessness and, you know, solve that problem. But if you're, what do you think the, the like high leverage decision is that maybe is not being done or, or that we need to remove that is being done? Is there anything that stands out to you? I mean, my political strategist is next year. So (laughs) during the election, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if there's anything that particularly stands out in that sense. I've never really thought about that question. I mean, I'm Mm. relatively happy in New York and I feel like given the scale of the city and the diversity and the challenge they have, I actually feel like it's pretty well run. Um, I lived in San Francisco. That is not a well-run city (laughs) and I've got good contrast. Um, I lived in Berlin and that city was run in a very different way than some of the others. Um, and I just feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like overall New York has been, it's been a great place. I don't know that I have anything that I pops at the top of mind. Yeah. 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 I, I, I taxes to me stand out is like, is there, is that an efficient use of funds? Like it has the highest taxes, I think in the country, uh, you know, relatively the lowest infrastructure to, they have, you know, people live in relatively small places. So there's not a ton of shared infrastructure like roads. You have subways, um, it, it certainly comes at a cost. People will leave, you know, there'll be some correlation between high taxes yeah. and I don't think, I don't think New York city is the only government that's inefficient. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, have you followed any of the, uh, there's a kind of an interesting movement happening now on the future of cities and, um, uh, network states is the term for it where people are kind of coordinating in ways to, uh, crowdfund land and crowdfund territory effectively in other other parts of the world. It's an interesting movement. I'm curious to see how it plays out because I think it does affect cities, affect industry, certainly in our lifetimes. Um, how about like broader picture, U.S. versus other countries in terms of like, say, well, we could take the simple softball would be like your customers. Is there a consolidation of U.S. companies, is that changing now where like companies are being started in other countries more so? Uh, U.S. has certainly had a competitive advantage, I'd argue, for the last century for a number of reasons. Um, it, do you see that changing where like maybe you're actually selling your software to co- companies in other parts of the world more so? Um, yeah, I mean, for, for, for us, we, have, we saw that expand. Right. So over post pandemic, right, we've seen more international, more overseas. Um, you know, we had a handful of early customers that had overseas subsidiaries. So, you know, that's always been part of our market segment. Um, we've supported multi, multinational, multi subsidiary, multi currency for almost three years. And we do that in a really first class way. And so we had some exposure to some of those broader kind of multinationals. I think that's accelerated. We see that. We see people picking up you know, offices, adding new subsidiaries, doing acquisitions in foreign markets. Um, so I think that trend will continue. And, you know, from a macro kind of startup perspective, right, I think you need access to capital, you need access to talent, you need access to a market, right? And I think like one of the reasons like Scandinavian startups do an awesome job of, of running across Europe because the Scandinavian market's too small. So you can't build a company just selling into Scandinavia, Right where you can build a company just selling to Germany or Doc. And so what happens is like, you know, and Israel has the same thing, like it's an export economy. So Israeli startups, like from day one, you are international. It's the only way the business will work. 
And so I think there's some interesting dynamics of that. And if you think about access to market, access to capital, and access to talent, then you can start to evaluate different geos. And as talent has become more mobile, capital has become more mobile, right? And then access to markets on the internet has become one click away. And so I think that is a really interesting kind of movement where I don't see startups having to be so physically co-located as they used to be. Um, And I think that broadening of that and all of those factors. I mean, when I was in Berlin, I don't remember the hard numbers, but I, I want to say it was like 300 million of venture capital. And then two years later, it was 3 billion that came into the Berlin market. But it was just, it was a massive influx of, of venture capital that flew into the Berlin market. There was good talent there and they started to figure out access you know, to the market outside of that. So you start to see some of these things happening and those things flowing. Um, to, to create a more egalitarian, globalized structure. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, no. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We Mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, And recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod. What did Berlin do right? I mean, what, why do you think they had such 10x on VC as a huge jump? I don't know if they did. I don't know if they did it right. I mean, <laughs> there's a few companies that came out of there, but a lot of them had these, you know, shark fin kind of results. Um, they're starting to see some more substantive successes in companies that are actually listing uh, there. And you know, some of my friends started those companies, like um, HelloFresh and a few others mm-hmm. in Berlin. And now they're starting to actually be material businesses. But it took a long time. I think one of the things that Berlin as a city did was they had massive economic incentives. So tax incentives, visa incentives, strong economic development. And then there was was some corporates. They didn't know what the hell they were doing, but they were still trying to fund and develop the startup ecosystem. And then you had a very low cost, cheap place to live. And so you're able to bring in immigrant talent, live cheaply, get supported by the government, and use that as the kindling to start some of this flywheel. But it did take a while, for sure. Yeah, certainly there seems to be something in the culture of Germany where, I mean, I'm half German, so I, I can speak to this, where there's a, there's an emphasis culturally similar. I, I viewed used Israel as an example. I've interviewed a few people from Israel who have started really successful companies. And one thing I repeatedly hear is that in Israel, because the military is mandatory and because the country is under constant physical threat of war, that everyone is like hyper incentivized to like genuinely learn technology 
for the sake of contributing to national defense. Like, let's build an anti-missile detection system because your family's life depends on it. It's a different kind of incentive than you'd have in the U.S. where, you know, geopolitically, we're not physically threatened, you know, nearly as much. We're not in the middle of it. So there's less of like, hey, learn technology for your own safety benefit. It's like, hey, learn technology if you want for a degree that you can maybe someday use and sure. so on and so forth. Germany, I think, is a, has a strong history of just having an emphasis on like, you know, the German like stereotype is like they're, they're uh, very efficient, very practical, pragmatic, able to get shit done. Berlin, I think, is kind of a the more culturally progressive city in Germany is what I've heard. Tesla set up their location there. They had a massive like rave party in the Tesla factory in Berlin when they launched. It seems like I've never been there, but it seems like a pretty awesome place to be. Um, yeah. H- have you seen other hot hotbeds like places across the world that you think are under invested in or underappreciated from, um, you know, potential business standpoint or cultural influential standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those things that's constantly changing, and I, you know, I haven't spent as much time in the startup ecosystem outside of the U.S. as I used to. Right? I mean, I think Australia has been on the rise. There's a lot of Australian companies that are now making access to the U.S. again because they have to get off. You know, they have to get off the continent. Um, so there's some interesting things happening there. I think Latin America also has a lot of interesting things going on, and yeah. there seems to be like the early kernels of startup activity in in Mexico City. It's still a very small ecosystem, but time zone, very compatible with the U.S. Culturally, I think very compatible with the U.S., still relatively inexpensive. Um, I think there's some capital that's flowing in there now and opportunities like that. And we've seen some of the Latin American copycats become successful and create a diaspora of people now that have some experience scaling companies. Um, So I do feel like it's a global movement. And I think... All the markets are kind of moving ahead. Lisbon obviously is has having a moment in Porto. There's a lot going on in Portugal. And again, that was stimulated by government stimulus, right? Tax incentives and visa incentives to get people to Portugal. And they timed it pretty well with the pandemic. And the weather's nice. The food is nice. It's still relatively inexpensive. And that creates a little bit of that alchemy. And I think we're, you know, we're going to continue to see that um, as some of this gets redistributed. Hmm. I want to sw- switch back a little bit. Uh, it's something I think a lot about as the the softer part of business management on culture. How do you uh, articulate the unique aspects of of building culture, or, or maybe specific to team pay? Like, is there are there there are certainly bread and butter cultural values that I think most companies want to deploy or employ. Are there things that you have really emphasized that are unique that seem to be? Uh, you know, uniquely characteristic of the 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 shared personality or culture of Team Pay that have worked really well. Yeah. So the way that we formed our values was kind of your question, which is we sat down really early because in my first startup, I didn't spend a lot of time being explicit, and I realized how important it was to be explicit about culture. And so I think we were four or six people, and we just raised around of funding. We were gonna we we're gonna double the team, you know, to twelve. Like, oh my god. 12 people. What are we going to do? And each person joining is like 10% of the culture. So we're like, all right, what does it, what does it look like for someone to be successful here? And what are the attributes that we want? And, you know, there's a number of kind of examples I use. One is just, you can be a perfectly fine kidney, but you can't, you may not be the right kidney for this body. And so understanding what that matching is, right. And it's not necessarily about you and there's right approaches for different companies, right. There's, 
you know, classic kind of examples with Uber and their culture and their just kind of like take up, you know, give a finger to the man. We're going to do whatever we want and deal with the mess later. Like I can't do that with a public company's books. No. So like our culture has to be a little more pragmatic, thoughtful and disciplined in that sense. Right. And that's the nature of the customer we serve the product and then how we build that. Um, so that's what formed our values. And then one of the things that we use that I think I find helpful when we onboard new people is we actually walk them through some subset of mental models that we use. And I like collecting mental models of how we think about decision-making and how we think about certain effects in the company and communication and things like that. So, you know, there's the classic Amazon one-way door versus two-way doors example of like when you're making a decision, is it a two-way door? go fast. Like, you don't need my approval. Just do it, right? Is it a one-way door? Are there, like, massive implications if we have to reverse that? Let's go slow, right? And so using that just as almost jargon, but, like, using that as a quick way to figure out, like, can I make a fast decision or a slow decision, right? Some of those rubrics. And so we use a number of mental models to kind of help people onboard and understand and give them guidelines to make better decisions. And that's always a living thing and work in progress as we continue to scale. All right. So you have the one-way door, two-way door. Are, are there things? So if I'm if I'm interviewing at TeamPay and I'm thinking, okay, what's this going to be like? Are people going to work uh, super, super long hours? Are people going to place more emphasis on making smart decisions that are efficient? Uh, how do you how do you sort of weigh the uh, cultural values when you said you created these these values internally? What are they? What are the things that are unique? Yeah. So we have five core values. Um, I always forget one, but let me see if I can get all five. (laughs) (laughs) Pressure's on. Yeah, I know. Grit, impact, self-discipline, curiosity, and I forgot the fifth, as usual. Um, Teamwork. There we go. I got all five. That Mm -hmm. was the first time I got all five at once. Um, And those are are things you can buy in the poster, right? Like, you buy the poster, you got the big black poster. It says grit. And, like, you're like, oh, this is amazing. You're climbing a mountain. That's not what we measure, right? So... We have detailed questions, detailed rubric. How have you evidenced grit before? Tell tell us about a difficult time where you failed. How did you recover? Tell us about a difficult time where you beat something against the odds, right? Um, Curiosity is one that I think is really important in startups. And so we're always just asking candidates. And, you know, if anyone's listening to this, they're applying a team pay, which some people will be. I'm giving you the answers to the test. So like, you got no excuse if you blow these, right? Curiosity is a simple one, which is like, tell us about some, something you learned on your own, right? Because there's plenty of people that are intelligent. They go through school and they do everything that is asked of them in the textbook, right? That is not what allows you to change the world in a startup. You got to be able to figure stuff out on your own. And you got to be able to do that in some sort of self, self-sufficient manner. And so it could be something small, like, you know, I learned how to fish or I learned a foreign language, which could be a little bit bigger, or I taught myself, you know, C++, whatever it is. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. Just tell us something you learned it alone. You learn on your own. That's an evidence of curiosity. And so across these five values, we actually have a double click on all of them of like, what do they mean for team pay? How do we interpret the words? And then how do we benchmark and assess against them? And every single person coming in the door is measured against those five. Is that a quantitative measurement or is that some sort of... Uh, it's qualitative. qualitative. It's qualitative, but standardized. 
And and would it be managed by their manager or measured by their manager? Or uh, no, it's measured as part of our interview panel. Oh, oh, just on the interview, you're saying, I see. And in response to their And then what we do, right? So no, but that's a good question, right? Then what we do post-hire is we reinforce those values every week. So you're allowed to nominate your team, your teammates, your team pay teammates for evidence of values. So like, hey, you know, Aslan showed incredible grit because he solved this problem at three o'clock in the morning and it was affecting one of our servers, right? Or, you know, this was incredible teamwork because they actually helped me with empathy, solve a problem that I needed to solve. And so you can nominate other team members. And so it ends up being a peer supported uh, reinforcement of the values. It's not top down. Mm. And is that a uh, kind of, uh, is that rewarded? So at the end of the week or so, you do this periodically where people are in a meeting? Yeah, we have, we have a wall of fame and we talk about it and we talk about what they did. And, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely like publicly called out and, you know, we keep track of all the winners and things like that. So yeah, we try to, you know, it's not gamified in a sense, yeah. but like we definitely want to, we want people to, to feel the acknowledgement and be rewarded. Totally. In my experience, more is less there. You know, the, the more you try to do to sort of fabricate some kind of, uh, yeah. it, it gets, if it's too gamified and then People it's just like, want recognition and acknowledgement right. and that's the, you know, that's the intrinsic part of it. And, you know, we built a very supportive culture and I think that's why the peer nomination part of it works so well for us. And what, uh, what other methods do you employ, like uh, OKRs, or are there are there other like business operational um, frameworks that have be have been really useful for you? Yeah, I mean, we tripled the size of the company in the last seven months, so we went from wow. forty to almost one hundred and ten. And so, you know, we rolled out OKRs. My CEO rolled out OKRs in um, Q two. That was our first quarter with them, and that was a really important unlock for organizational alignment. Right. So how do you get people at the edges aligned with the decisions at the top? What are the North Star metrics? What are the key results that we're driving towards? And how do we monitor our progress along the way? Um, So that was the first time that I've used an OKR system as well. And, you know, I think we found it really valuable. And we actually have seen the teams adopting good decision making and using the OKRs sometimes even against the exec team of like, well, hold on, we're focused on this thing right now and you're asking me to do this. How does it fit in? And like, I love that because that back pressure is what helps us make good decisions. It's like, oh shoot, you're actually right. Like, don't forget about that thing. I want you to do that thing first. This thing comes next. And so it allows you to have some of those prioritization discussions and have that open dialogue and back pressure that I think is really, really important and using those OKRs as a way to make sure that you have guardrails. Mm. Any other, um, uh, I hate to use this term, but nothing else comes to mind, like business advice or business, uh, oper- would you call it like operational tactics, maybe is a better word for it, that have stood out to you over the years? You know, when you listen to podcasts, read books, talk to other founders, you pick up on other ways that people run their businesses. But are there any that have stood out to you and you've implemented either at TeamPay or thinking of doing or have done in the past that you think other founders should really consider? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we do that can be controversial, especially for people coming from other companies, is the way we use Slack. So Slack, when they launched, they, they wrote an article about how Slack uses Slack, and they'll have very ephemeral channels. So they'll have a production incident, 
for four hours, and there's a Slack channel. Incident 4315, dated August 2nd, da-da-da. And everybody will swarm in the channel, use that channel for discussion, sharing documents, collaboration. And when the incident's over, they archive it and tear the channel down. Um, so we use those channels for ephemeral needs, project-based needs. Um, we use those channels for potentially like internal ongoing programs, right? So like, you know, by program, I'm referring particularly to a line of business or a particular partnership or, you know, a particular product line or feature. That's a program in a sense. It's longitudinal. It's permanent. It's not ephemeral. Um, so we'll have channels for programs and then we'll have channels for teams. So like the developer engineering team has a bunch of channels. The infrastructure team just spun out some new channels yesterday. Um, and so we use Slack pretty aggressively in that sense. And I think if you're used to this mode of having to reply to every message and feeling like you've got to keep it down to inbox zero, it can be overwhelming. It's more of a river of information with the ability to go back in time, right? And so, you know, there's some degree of radical transparency on them. All the channels, really all, all the channels that, you know, we create typically are public unless they're company sensitive information, public meaning open to the business, open to anyone in the company. So, you know, a salesperson can drop into a product development channel for a particular feature and see where it is at and if there's any, you know, where the discussion is and ask questions. And so that's really valuable. It's like walking into someone's cube or a, a squad, right? When you used to have a farm of cubes. Um, so I think that part is different. Like companies like Stripe, they've talked about every email is archived and public. So yeah. there's no private email at Stripe, right? And I got to experience that because we were talking to them about some opportunities together and somebody shows up that I never heard from like, hey, my name's so-and-so and I read all the history and I know where things are and I'm picking this up from so-and-so and it was seamless. And so there's some value in that and having the history. Um, so I think that's something that we've been trying to figure out now. How do you scale that to a thousand people? It's probably different. And so at each level of a company, kind of there's a step function difference in communications, alignment, um, all of these things. And I think there's still some TBD on that. But, you know, the underlying philosophy is how do we facilitate transparency and how do we give employees context around information without requiring them to have a meeting or send a report or anything overly bureaucratic and structured. And that's a constantly moving dial, but it's something that we've done that's probably a little different than other businesses. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It was a good example. Uh, and thanks so much for hopping on, Andrew. Um, do you want to throw out any personal uh, Twitter, Medium, blogs that you have? We'll have all the links to TeamPay in the show notes, but anywhere where you're publicly, personally active? Yeah, I mean, I'm active. I'm I'm as, as active as I feel like I can be as a, you know, CEO running a 110 person company and scaling fast on Twitter at AJ Hogue. So that's probably the best place to, to follow me there. Um, once in a while I'm funny. So there's something there. And then once in a while I'm talking about team pay and finance. So that's a good place to catch up with me. You can always find team pay at www.teampay.co and that's our website. Um, so, you know, those are the two places to hit me up and, you know, always happy to hear questions and kind of talk about things and really enjoyed the time. Mike. It was a yeah. fun kind of wide ranging discussion. Yeah. I appreciate it, Andrew. Take care, man. We'll have this up soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. 
If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.